We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening on our 200th show by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the seemingly never-ending saga of National Taiwan University President Guangzhou Min, child abuse cases making headline news, plans to ban access to internal networks from Huawei devices, more money for the space technology sector, and the pending return of a well-known former baseball team. But we'll begin with a new cabinet, although the word new may be considered rather a stretch. Now, Premier Su Jung Chung and members of his cabinet were sworn in into office on Monday at a ceremony hosted by President Tsai Ing-wen at the presidential office. 29 cabinet ministers kept their jobs in the reshuffle, but the new ministers, again, if the word new is apt or not, include Acting Council of Agriculture Minister Chen Ji-jong, who was promoted to head the agency, Deputy Environment Minister Zhang Zijing, who was promoted to head the EPA, former Taichung Mayor Lin Jialong, who was appointed Transport Minister, and former Education Minister Pan Wen-jong, was named, well, the new Minister of Education. Pan, of course, resigned from the same post in April of last year in the wake of controversy over the election of Guangzhou Min as the head of the National Taiwan University. So, Ross, new cabinet, old cabinet, or a repeat cabinet, or a surprise cabinet, or no surprises at all? <laughs> Might use a different word, which would be disappointment. So if the public, the voters, had hoped for significant changes in the lineup, they didn't get it, uh, as you mentioned most of the people in the cabinet uh, are holdovers. There's very few uh, new persons. And one of the few new persons, and I put new in quotes, is the returning education minister, uh, Mr. Pan, as you mentioned. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult for this new cabinet to show the public that they really are the right people for the jobs because the public has already been disappointed in their performance uh, specifically over the course of 2018. Um, keeping in mind William Lai, the previous premier, came into office in, in the second half of 2017. Over time, he made some changes to, to, the, to the cabinet that he inherited, uh, but, but the public has generally seen these people and the public has not been that satisfied with their performance. In fact, public approval of, of their performance continued to fall over the course of 2018. And, and this was billed as a, a significant change in response to the DPP's poor performance in the election, which was a result of the poor performance of the previous cabinet. Uh, and yet the same, for the most part, the same people are, are brought back into office. Uh, to sum all that up, Gavin, I, I would say they have a very short or non-existent honeymoon period. They need to perform right away. And so what is surprising to me is that it's not a surprise that these are the same faces again, with exception of, for example, Xu Chang as the new premier. And even then, Xu uh, Chang lost in the last set of elections. Um, he has been in politics a very long time, and so he's not exactly a new face. And even William Lai, who was the last premier, was a newer face, a fresher face, um, just younger and an up-and-coming politician. And Xu Chang so doesn't represent new change. Um, 
with regards to the posts that were kept, for example, with the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joseph Wu, staying on, that represents consistency, um, which doesn't surprise. The time decision probably will not change too substantially on cross-strait relations going forward. Um, but then in regards to domestic policies or, or trying to convince the public that uh, you will push for economic growth and uh, turn over a new leaf, that hasn't happened. And so it seems that if this is possibly the last uh, cabinet that the time station has before the next set of elections, the time station currently hopes to stay the course. Uh, it's not going to come with new things before elections to try to really win over the public, um, at least at the level of policy, though maybe in terms of appearance or messaging, it will make some changes. And so I think it's, it's a question, like, why did the time mission do this? So Brian mentioned the L word, loser, that Su Jun Chang lost the election. In fact, uh, not not singling him out or being especially cruel. The, the data speaks for itself, the voting data. He lost by a lot, as did two other people that are actually new to the cabinet team. Uh, uh, Chen Chi Mai has joined the cabinet as, as a deputy, minister, uh, deputy premier or minister of that portfolio. Uh, he lost by a surprisingly large margin in Kaohsiung to Han Guoyu. And Lin Jialong, the who was the incumbent mayor and got turned out by the voters, uh, which is quite a humiliation, also by a large amount. And he's been rewarded for his electoral defeat with a ministerial portfolio as, as the Minister of Transportation and Communications, which has to deal with a lot of very controversial issues, which have already been on his agenda in his first few days in office. Uh, so how do you justify to the public that these three losers, and I'm not, I don't say losers because I don't like the guys or, or they, they don't have good personalities. In fact, Su Jun Chang is a very outgoing and personable guy. Uh, but they, they did just lose their elections by large amounts and get rewarded by, by being promoted. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what other democracy this would happen in. Uh, hey, but of course, Lin Jialong did come out this week and say, well, hang out, we're, we're going to cut the freeway tolls every day during the Lunar New Year holiday. Well, that, that, that's nothing to admire simply because uh, every New Year holiday or the four-day holidays that periodically occur o- over the course of a year, this issue gets uh, litigated, for lack of a better word, in the public discussion space. So every minister before him had every type of policy for uh, the freeway tolls over holiday periods. So he has innumerable examples to look at of what's been done before, what worked well before, what didn't work well before, what makes for good or bad public policy. If he can't get this right by now, then he doesn't even deserve to, to last past the New Year holiday. I think the priority with the DPP is probably advancing the middle generation politicians, such as Chen Ximai or Ling Jialong. Um, sorry, the these ones, guys the ones, are in their right. sorry, Brian. And they're in their, their, their 50s, early 50s, 50s or by. late 40s at the most. So that's you know they don't actually have young people. And Su Chen Chang is 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 71, so he's much older as well. And so this really points to a generational gap in the DPP that they can't really advance younger people to middle level positions. Um, there's talk of the middle level generation, but they're already quite old. And so that that really points to the current gaps, uh, the current issues within the DPP. And and uh, the ones that managed to win are taking up their local positions as mayors are retaining them. But then with the people that lost, you're trying to promote them anyway. And so they just don't have anyone else right now. It's, it's clear with this cabinet reshuffle. And of course, they did keep Joseph Wu as foreign minister. And of course, <laughs> Brian did say there was a generation gap. And of course, Joseph Wu and one of his former aides made headlines this week, Ross. with Of course, he was a young person that was promoted, but he was promoted to a position that there was questions about why Vincent Chow was promoted. Yes, this young man who's uh, in his early 30s has been sent to a very significant role at the representative office, the de facto embassy in Washington, D.C. It has uh, a job that, that has 
traditionally gone not to a political appointee, but to somebody from the Taiwan Foreign Service and, and typically goes to somebody with 15 to 20 years of experience in the Foreign Service, which uh, by definition, someone with 15 to 20 years experience would have had several postings both overseas as well as at headquarters here in Taipei. So it's it's a outside the system appointment, uh, which by itself is, is not necessarily bad, but it should be the right person. So uh, the media conversation this week is, is don't the, our listeners shouldn't misunderstand that people are simply questioning a political appointee. That is not the case. What people are questioning is whether this is the correct political appointee. Uh, does he have enough work experience? Uh, is he there to be a channel that bypasses the traditional uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs reporting lines? Uh, and questions about uh, the timing of when he gave up his citizenship have also been in the news this week because uh, he gave up or he applied to give up his Canadian citizenship uh, within days before um, President Tsai was sworn in. Uh, so there, there's commentators in the media say, well, you only gave up your citizenship uh, simply because you knew you were getting a job in the government. Um, yeah, it's unusual that this became a, a controversy. It suddenly blew up suddenly because he's been a figure that's been around for a while. He did the interpretation for Tsai's inauguration. Um, but now with his new appointment, he's suddenly come under a lot of public scrutiny. A lot of it does come from the KMT that perhaps he did seem an easy target as someone that's younger, uh, seems more inex- inexperienced, and you can and he's already in the public eye. And so attacking him, you're attacking a recognizable figure, um, one that just well, well, but, but there's a difference between attack and legitimate questions about again the mm-hmm. you know his suitability for the job and and. And the I think, timing I of giving of it, up his citizenship. These are legitimate questions, and, and there there might be very strong counter arguments to make. But I, I wouldn't necessarily call them attacks. Um, I think a lot of it returned to his age. But for example, I think the public is sometimes not too familiar with political appointees. For example, Jing Putong was also someone that uh, you know was a representative of the, of the ROC to the U.S. Much older. Yes, but but, but he was also didn't have that experience. But that's, a, but that's a job uh, that has traditionally been a political appointee. Right, the head of that office has has often been a political appointee, uh, even if it is somebody who is coming from the Foreign Service. They're a political appointee in the sense that the president specifically appoints that person. You know, it's not just somebody who's uh, selected within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs without input from the president. Uh, so yeah, I don't find that to be the best comparison. At the, at the same time, it's surprising because there's been uh, similar appointees in the past, basically from the international section of the DPP or um, you know, outreach attempts that were very English-focused during elections to these kind of positions in, in representative offices. And so this time it became controversial, but uh, it, it is still surprising that it appeared at this juncture. Yeah, but even though those appointees in the cultural division, and I've, I've known some of them from different offices around the world, they had much more substantive experience than, than this young man does. Uh, for example, the recently uh, outgoing uh, cultural representative in Hong Kong is a, is a very famous author, you know, decades mm-hmm. of experience within the cultural space, and was was a excellent fit as a political appointee to be representing the cultural aspects of Taiwan's diplomacy. 
Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do wonder if this uh, controversy did not work out the way I think the KMT attacks on Vincent Chow were aimed at, because this a lot of the the verdict on Chow did seem to reverse course eventually. That there are a lot more positive assessments of him afterwards. Um, you know, there's there's always the call for the DPP to advance young people, and so uh, some people did actually see this as as the DPP uh, doing what it said it would do after elections and actually advancing you know young people to high positions. Anyway, we'll move on from that topic, and we thought it was all over, but it's not because although Guan Zhongmin was finally given the keys to his nice office at the National Taiwan University. The Control UN this week voted 7-4 to four to impeach the man over allegations that he violated laws that banned civil servants from taking side jobs. Well, there we go. One week after he took office, he was impeached. Now, the government watchdog says that evidence shows that Guan wrote editorial articles regularly and anonymously for Next magazine from between February of 2012 through February of 2015 while he was serving as a government official. And according to the Control UN, Guan was earning an additional income of 650,000 NT per year for writing the articles in violation of the Public Servant Work Act. And the Control UN members that voted to impeach Guan say that his actions seriously damaged civil service discipline and protocol and it voted to impeach him for serious misconduct. So, Ross, I mean, you've been a great defender of Mr Guan over the past year and a bit. So, serious protocol violations and misconduct. Well, I've been a defender of NTU, National Taiwan University's ability to select its own, uh, what they call president, uh, some people might call it chancellor, uh, and that the process by which he was selected uh, appears to have followed the school's rules, right? The school had the right to design a selection process. Now, we could look look at the process and say, well, this process is not really uh, user-friendly. It's hard to understand. There were multiple rounds of going through the candidates. But the school was allowed to set its own process. Via this process, he was selected. And historically, that's been respected by the Ministry of Education, which uh, doesn't ha- really have a veto, right? They just have to put their stamp on a letter from Tai Da that, that says, uh, this is who we've selected. And they refu- the ministry refused to do so for a year. So they, that was really a, a interference in, in the school's uh, independence. And a lot of people around Taiwan, especially in the academic world, were unhappy with that. As, as far as this impeachment, uh, his lawyers, his defenders are, are already producing evidence of, of circulars issued by government departments in the past, going back many decades that seem to be on point saying, well, actually, this kind of writing um, and, and doing it in this kind of limited amount of time is, is permitted. Uh, so this this is not over yet. It, they're going to keep fighting this. Uh, and also, listeners should keep in mind that the Control UN passing a, a impeachment resolution actually has very little legal effect. So there would have to be other agencies within the government that would have to further intervene to actually bring any kind of discipline on Mr. Guan. And this certainly doesn't mean that he faces any imminent forced resignation, for example. And nor would the school, I think, be forced to have a new vote or to fire him or anything like that. Right. Apparently his lawyer, I've got his quote from his lawyers here, who argue that the Control UN has no legal basis for considering the payments that he allegedly got from the magazine as proof of him taking a part-time job as Guan did not take up a position or sign a contract with the magazine, Brian. 
<laughs> so it's it's interesting timing because uh, just when we thought this was over, now there's another issue. Um, Quan has three major scandals, and it was quite interesting the ones that uh, Time Institution has focused on previously when they did try to block him from taking the appointment. Um, and that was specifically the issue of election. Was the election conducted in a fair way? Were there conflicts of interest because uh, you know he was on the board of of one of the members of the uh, Taiwan uh, on the board of Taiwan Mobile, and one of the members of that board was also part of the selection committee. And so they criticized the election as being a selection, quote unquote. Um, and there are two other major scandals at the time, which were uh, plagiarism of a student's paper, potentially, and the other one was potentially working in China and teaching, uh, despite the fact that as a former minister, he should not have done that so fast. And so this current scandal resembles that one, that he was doing something when he was a minister that maybe he shouldn't have been doing. Um, and I just I kind of wonder why it comes on. Uh, it's emerged now, why the control ren moves so slowly without an eye to how uh, this would appear, that this, this is not settled. Um, yeah. But Brian, I mean, obviously, like you said, there was controversy with Guan before, and all of a sudden, Guan was allowed to take his post at Taida, mm. and then this came out. I mean, where was where was this where were these allegations hidden it, during the previous controversy? It's, a, it's such odd timing because right before that, right before Kwan was allowed to take this post, and we all thought it was over. Simon Strin said, "Okay, finally, we're not going to let him take up this post. We finally made up our mind." And then suddenly. Uh, NTU did not seem like they would abide by that. And so the time institution reversed course again. And then now this scandal suddenly emerges. And so part of me wonders why this did not come out earlier, but it just it could just be processual. Um, it has also noted that uh, been noted that uh, supposedly the Thai appointees in the control room voted against Guan, and one of the Mon administration appointees agreed, but the rest were more supportive of Guan, that they did not uh, want you know want to impeach him. And so it, it divides against uh, among partisan political lines once again. It, but the key thing here is ultimately what's going to happen next. So as we talked about, Guan's lawyers are going to have their defenses. Uh, some of them are going to be stronger than others. The fact that he signed a contract or didn't sign a contract is interesting, but it's probably not, not as important as providing proof that government agencies in the past have, have issued uh, circulars, as I said earlier, saying that this kind of activity, this kind of uh, writing something periodically a few times a month or, or whatever the frequency is, uh, is, is not uh, violating, you know, it's not proof of having a second job. It would be ridiculous to say that this was a second job. Uh, um, he was sitting in his ministerial posts full time all day long and then in, in his leisure time uh, writing a few things. You know what? Even, even if he took a phone call from Next during the day saying, well, we don't understand what you wrote in the third paragraph. Can you Could you revise this? Uh, it's hardly detrimental to carrying out his duties uh, as a minister. And <clears throat> pardon me, and the, the money is, is also next to his ministerial salaries is quite small. Um, he probably did it for relationship purposes with, with the publication. Uh, but he wasn't doing it to get rich. Uh, so the, the, ultimately, this is probably just going to be much ado about nothing, uh, no matter how much his opponents, which is mostly driven by politics, because they, they don't like the idea of somebody who worked in the Ma administration forming the thoughts of young minds at, at National Taiwan University. Uh, so they'll just keep looking for ways to attack him. Right. Now, there was some sad news this week when an 18-month-old child in Tainan was actually beaten to death. Four people, or three adults rather, and one minor have been detained for that. And it sparked, well, lawmakers are now looking to amend child protection laws because, of course, this week's incident in Tainan was, well, 
the third one in about as many weeks. Now, lawmakers from across party lines say they plan to prioritise amendments to Article 286 of the Criminal Code and to the Protection of Children and Youth's Welfare and Rights Act during the next legislative session, which begins on February the 15th. Now, a draft amendment to the Criminal Code was proposed by the Cabinet and sent to the Legislative UN in September of last year, and that's still waiting to be reviewed by the Judiciary and Organic Laws Committee. And under that amendment, the maximum penalty for the abuse of a minor under the age of 16 that results in impaired mental or physical health or development is up to five years in prison, while the draft amendment also adds penalties for cases of severe injury and death, and the prison sentence for the death of a child as a result of abuse is being set at between 10 years to life. So some pretty horrific news over the past three weeks, Brian, and of course it came to a head this week with the death of an 18-month-old child. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. At the same time, though, I- I'm not sure what increasing the penalties will really do to curb this problem, because unfortunately, you have emotional issues in families, and sometimes you do have parents that take it on the child in a way that uh, you know results in the death of child or severe injury or permanent trauma. And I think really what the measure should, that should be taken is is strengthening social services in Taiwan so as to, to avoid this kind of problem, to address this kind of problem when it does emerge. And I'm not sure that any, let's say, abusive parent will just be scared off suddenly by these new punishments and decide, okay, well, I'm not going to beat my child anymore. And so I don't think this is going to solve the issue. Um, I just think that, particularly in Taiwan, whenever there's a, a wave of a certain kind of crime and it's heavily reported on the media, for example, previously there was the dismemberment incidents in the previous years, the call is usually just to strengthen legal penalty for whatever that crime is. And as, as a kind of deterrent, there's this notion that this will actually scare people away from that. And particularly when it comes to emotional things, such as which lead to abuse or murder or what have you, I'm not sure just increasing the penalties will help. This is... Uh uh, again, as Brian said, it's a, it's a typical response, uh, but the, I, I have a bit different perspective on on why it's it's a bad idea. I, I think the problem is not just social services; it's actually the court system and trials or investigations and then indictments and then trials, these things take years. Then there's appeals. And very often we see that the penalties are reduced on appeal. Uh, lawyers come up with all sorts of stories to defend their clients. The accused has a sob story that the judge might buy into. Uh, so uh, as I've said many times on your show, Gavin, the, you know, there's serious problems with, with the judicial system, both with how prosecutors conduct investigations, how they argue their cases, as well as how judges uh, decide the cases, uh, disp- decide guilt or innocence, and then how they impose penalties. I think the issue here is is not, or, or the concern is, is not to write another section of the law or, or to start making classifications of victims, right? So somebody who's 15 years old and, and 361 days will get a certain penalty, and somebody who's uh, 16 years old and, and 10 days, you know, a victim, then there'd be a different kind of penalty on, on a perpetrator. It, this, it gets nonsensical. Really, the judges should be imposing the maximum penalties that are allowed under the law. Um, you know, the, the way it would typically work in a mature legal jurisdiction is there, there'd be uh, statutes criminalizing certain types of behavior, and there there would be a range of a jail sentence, you know, three years to 10 years. And the judges should be imposing the 10 years in, in, instead of uh, giving lighter sentences, which we often see here in Taiwan. 
Right, and of course, Brian, the president this week, came out and said that she, she's highly concerned, of course, by the issue of child abuse, and she's urging the public to report suspected cases to authority. And she's been quoted by Presidential Office spokesman Alex Huang as saying that she thinks that people in communities have a major role to play in the reporting of child abuse in their neighbourhoods and should pay close attention to such matters. I mean, in a way, it sounds good, but do you think it's also got a negative side to that, you know, nosy neighbour system? Um, it could be. It depends on. It really depends on um, how it's carried out, and I think that's that's always the issue with child services. That sometimes people misunderstand. Um, sometimes child services is acting on the wrong information, for example, um, and it's very hard to determine. I think there's there's a. It's something that's to be worked out. But I think it is also just that there needs to be a broader campaign of education, um, not just making just saying these things and and urging more uh, just people to step up and watch the neighbors more. You know, there has to be education about what systems there are, what services are provided, and that this is how you best address a uh, case of child abuse. And I think that that is an issue. I mean, I think it could be definitely be done on the local level. That there could be more uh, information distributed from local officials such as uh, Li Zhang or uh, neighborhood uh, chiefs and so forth, and that alongside other emergency services, this could be advertised. And I think that is one way forward. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and government institutes are clamping down on Chinese tech gadgets and banning users of all devices made by Huawei technologists from accessing their internal networks. Now, the Industrial Technology Research Institute initiated such a ban on Tuesday. The Institute for Information Industry says that users of China-made communications devices will not be allowed to access its internal network by May. And the National Applied Research Laboratories says that it's also studying the feasibility of such a ban on Chinese tech products. So, Ross, the ban on Chinese tech products, good thing, bad thing, or, you know, maybe over... over, over what's the word I'm looking for? O- overplayed by certain people on yeah. the, the China scare. It seems like you're having trouble connecting with this issue. Oh, just, I know. I don't, I don't, use, like I don't use a Huawei device. <laughs> the, the, I think the reaction from... that I read in the media from a technology industry executive put it best... He was quoted as saying something like, really? Well, you know, in our facilities, in, in sections of our facilities that are have a need to be secure, such as to protect intellectual property uh, or to protect cleanliness, uh, we, we've banned devices. All devices, all mobile devices are banned from being brought in or connecting to a network in certain parts of their facility and have been for many years. So the concept of of banning devices from certain parts of a facility uh, to protect uh, information security or intellectual property is not new in Taiwan, um, and it's not new in the technology space, again, because because of the the nature of what some of Taiwan's great IT hardware companies do in the semiconductor chip space, design, manufacturing, and some of the other hardware manufacturers as well. So industry is familiar with this concept. And uh, again, the the key point that this executive made was, you know, we don't ban specific brands. We just ban them all from certain parts of our facility that have a need to be more secure. Uh, And this shows that targeting Huawei or other made-in-China brand, or I should say Chinese brands, because most of the devices we use are made in China, uh, targeting a brand 
it might not really be a logical solution. It might be more of a public relations exercise. So if there's concerns about devices accessing the network, then uh, we should think about all devices because, you know, Gavin, no matter what brand of device you use, your device might be compromised because we know that um, whether it's Taiwan or China or the United States, everybody is trying to infiltrate your devices given the secrets that you know. Uh, so the, if somebody uh, might have been infiltrated and then they're uh, entering facilities that have a need to be more secure, like eTree, uh, then it's, it's really an issue about network security, not, not a brand of device. Uh, we have to be very careful here because this could lead to consumer backlash um, over rules that don't really solve the, the identified concern. And, and again, a lot of devices that are either Taiwan or, or global brands are made in China. And the, the Chinese brands like Huawei have actually become very popular because they make good devices. And, of course, Brian, apparently Huawei enjoys a 6.6% share of Taiwan's smartphone market. And I was actually in one of Taipei's larger tech malls at the weekend, and the Huawei device store was completely full of people. So was was the Xiaomi store. That's right. Um, So this concern has been around for a while with regards to Huawei or Xiaomi before it. Uh, And there are a lot lot of Chinese tech companies out there that provide products which are very commonly used. And so what do you do then to really try to wean yourself off that? Well, it's not so easy because whether regards to hardware or software, uh, the presence of China is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, Huawei is the world's largest provider of telecommunications equipment. Um, Even if it's not a Huawei or a Chinese brand, again, as Ross has mentioned, these phones and these uh, chips are being produced in, in China, and so what then? And uh, even then, if not for the hardware, then there's the software issue that, let's say, you have WeChat on your phone, perhaps that's also providing a backdoor into your cell phone. So I think a lot of it is for the sake of PR, but in terms of the actual uh, broader steps that Taiwan uh, can do to really address this problem, it's, it's still up for consideration. I mean, America and its allies, um, you know, Canada, the UK, Germany, Australia, have been considering this problem as well, just that these, these, uh, this equipment provided by Huawei or other companies is so widely used now. Um, how do you really get around that do you think to play the devil's advocate here ross do you think if the u.s made tech products like huawei phones do you think the chinese will be screaming you're spying on us it's a reasonable question to ask and and again there there are global brands that are made in in china Uh, but china could still say well apple is an american brand we don't care that the products are made here in china uh and we're now going to ban them from entering certain facilities uh Publicly owned facilities in China is going to be a much wider list than here in Taiwan, um, whether it's research institutions, universities, state-owned enterprises. So, uh, again, we're going down a road that doesn't really solve the the problem, and it seems to be more of a public relations exercise, which I I think is is just a terrible thing to do because it's like the boy who cried wolf kind of situation. It really – takes the focus away. It takes the, the institutional focus, uh, whether the organization involved like eTree or the government, security officials, and the public as well. It takes us away from what we really should be focusing on, which is the real, actual, identifiable security risks and not going through some PR exercise. And it's quite interesting because the way that, uh, for example, the public reacts um, really frames the issue in a way that's somewhat misleading. For example, just again, like that it is all produced in China. That's the realities of globalization. If we're produced in America or an American ally, 
uh, then there'll be allegations that America is using us as a backdoor into China. And you do have that. Um, you know, things that are produced in America-affiliated countries, China will accuse this of being, um, you know, part of attempts by America to undermine China. Um, after the arrest of uh, Meng Wanzhou, the claim was that America could compete with China. And so that's why there's these arrests. Um, Chinese consumers are boycotting iPhones, despite the fact that iPhones are produced in China. Um, and so it, it's interesting, but just government officials sometimes just really want to pacify the public, in spite of the fact that the perception of the public might not be so accurate about what the actual problem is. We shall move on from one form of technology now to another, a greater form of technology, in fact, as Premier Su Jung Chung on Tuesday of this week signed off on a plan to spend 25 billion NT over the next decade to develop Taiwan's Space Technology Center. And it was the first document he, in fact, signed after being sworn in on Monday. And Sue says the measure is part of the government's third space programme, which is aimed at nurturing new talent and boosting natural resources on space technology and applying the results to support industrial development. Now, to help us understand matters of space technology, I spoke with Lauren Jung, an associate professor at the National Central University's Institute of Space Science. Good evening, Lauren. Hi, Gavin. How's it going? So, 25 billion NT over the next decade on space technology. And, of course, the Ministry of Science and Technology has said that the funding will focus on developing satellites and related technology over the next decade. So, Lauren, what type of equipment could this include? Well, this is um, a very big step up in terms of funding compared to previous phases of the uh, space program. Uh, some of the uh, key highlights of this actually involve the use of satellites for uh, mapping and imaging the Earth in various ways. So one of the uh, key developments is to develop a very high-resolution optical remote sensing that is essentially uh, taking the uh, satellite photographs that we often see on Google Maps and are also used as the uh, basis for, um, for mapping, resource development, disaster relief, and, of course, um, intelligence. The other uh, type of mapping technology technology that is going to be developed is what's called synthetic aperture radar. That's a way of using radar to, uh, again, perform similar high-resolution mapping functions. And the benefit of this over uh, using um, just optical remote sensing is that with radar, we can actually perform mapping even when there isn't direct sunlight or even through clouds. So this is a very big step up in terms of our uh, remote sensing and uh, observational capabilities. Right. I mean, would these satellites be completely and fully developed by Taiwanese companies and Taiwanese equipment, or would they still be relying on maybe some technology exchanges from the United States? Um, well, it's quite possible that uh, in the case of certain uh, components, there still might be a need um, to uh, collaborate or purchase from foreign suppliers. But one trend that has been occurring with the space program, especially um, in, the, uh, uh, in Phase 2, which is from 2004 through 2018, is the uh, increase in the proportion of components that are domestically manufactured and designed. For example, um, our last satellite, Formosat 5, that was launched uh, in 2017, was actually entirely self-developed. Certain components were still purchased from abroad, but in general, a higher proportion of the spacecraft was actually designed and built here in Taiwan with uh, local expertise. Right, so do you think it's possible, this is obviously the third stage of the space technology program, do you think by the end of the next decade, Taiwan could possibly be developing 100% of every satellite on its own? Well, it's certainly a very ambitious goal, but it certainly is in line with um, the, some of the objectives of, of the uh, th uh, third phase of the program. For example, uh, in the case of uh, 
technology, we've already seen NSPO, that is our uh, National Space Agency, develop, um, for example, the onboard computers and avionics for uh, the spacecraft. In the case of Formosat 5, the optical remote sensing uh, payload, that is the uh, camera plus the telescope, was also self-developed. And um, also there's a significant investment into uh, the development of the uh, human capital, the, expert- the technical expertise you need to design, execute, and uh, utilize the uh, data from a mission like this. For example, um, uh, in addition to uh, the funding from uh, the Ministry of Science and Technology in Phase 3 of the program, other uh, government agencies, for example, the Ministry of Education, have also been investing a lot into the development of the aerospace and defense sector in Taiwan. Over this uh, past year, we we ourselves have been um, beneficiaries of this. We actually received uh, funding of $415 million um, Taiwan dollars over the next five years to build uh, Taiwan's first uh, university uh, space center to train um, the next generation of engineers and scientists. Right. Going briefly back to components, do you think Taiwan could one day be an exporter of space technology components? It is certainly um, a possibility, given the fact that we already are an exporter of components in the, uh, well, primarily the aeronautical sector for uh, commercial airplanes. For example, um, our uh, partially state-owned Aerospace Industrial Development Corporation, AIDC, based in uh, Taichung, they already are a major contract manufacturer for uh, components uh, going to uh, foreign companies such as uh, Boeing and um, Airbus. So certainly there is um, a uh, uh, very strong potential for uh, Taiwan to also uh, enter the space market. As a matter of fact, uh, NSPO is already sponsoring um, several small satellite teams at local universities and with uh, small and medium industry. And part of the objective of this project is actually to develop components um, that uh, local companies can, in fact, sell to the uh, growing um, small satellite market. Right, of course, it's 25 billion NT over the next decade. And obviously, this program no doubt has its detractors that say, well, maybe we should spend 25 billion NT on more terrestrial things. <laughs> yep, that always comes up whenever, um, whenever we discuss uh, space programs anywhere. But one thing that I think a lot of us uh, don't really realize, uh, we sort of take for granted, is how much we actually rely on space technology, even more so today. I mean, if you uh, take a look at your cell phone, it has built-in GPS. It has um, built-in uh, navigation programs like Google Earth, Google Maps, that, that uh, you know, use the results of uh, satellite remote sensing to, uh, to direct you to wherever it is you want to go. Our, uh, in the case of b- banking, for example, where uh, transactions need to be timed very precisely, we actually rely on atomic clock data from um, the uh, GPS satellites. And additionally, of course, there's, all, there's also a strong reliance on satellite communications and also, um, and also uh, nowadays tracking for uh, commercial aircraft and uh, shipping. Right. I mean, obviously you teach at a university. Is there much interest among young people at school and at university level in space technology? Oh, I think, um, you know... Uh, from a very young age, most of us uh, all went through a phase where, you know, uh, we wanted to be astronauts, and uh, I think uh, most students still find uh, the uh, idea of working on space technology or space science to be fundamentally very cool. Of course, uh, the challenge for us is, again, to uh, be able to convey to students um, the uh, how pervasive actually this actually is in their daily lives, and then equipping them with the uh, tools 
and skills they need to uh, to actually uh, become um, professionals in this uh, sector. Right. And one last question. Are you a Star Wars fan or a Star Trek fan? You really like asking the controversial questions, don't you? I know, I know. I just uh, had to know. Been long and prosper, my friend. That was me in conversation with Lauren Jung, who's an associate professor at the National Central Taiwan University's Institute of Space Science. And before we go today, the Wei Chuen Dragons look set to return to the Chinese Professional Baseball League as talks are underway to re-establish the team later this year. CPBL Commissioner John Wu is being quoted as saying that he hopes the Dragons can play in the minor league next season before entering the Professional League for the 2021 season. Now, of course, the team won the CPBL Championships four times between 1990 and 1999 when it was disbanded due to financial losses and also after Wei Chuen was absorbed by the Dingxing International Group. Now, Dingxing is reportedly seeking to base the new team in Kaohsiung, which of course is a city without a baseball team and it's been without a baseball team since the E-United Group sold the E-Dai Rhinos to the Fubon Financial Group in 2016 and the Fubon Financial Group renamed the team the Fubon Guardians and they moved north to New Taipei City. So the return of the Wei Chuen Dragons, Ross. Of course, the team we should say was mired in a slight bit of match-fixing and bung-taking once upon a time. Once upon a time, the entire baseball league, all two of them, uh, the two major leagues that existed or competed against each other in in the late 90s, uh, were were, uh, mired probably wouldn't be the correct word. It's something more deep than a mire as far as uh, uh, match-fixing. And it was very damaging to the sport locally as well as to Taiwan's uh, reputation internationally and specifically within the, the sporting and, and baseball space. A uh, very interesting aspect of this is that uh, symptomatic of even lawmaking, you know, we were talking earlier in the show about uh, you know, revising some laws with regard to child abuse and back and forth from the different stakeholders or, or Guan, Guangzhou means appointment in the back and forth between the control UN and the Ministry of Education. So now we see this back and forth also with the baseball league, the CPBL, and and, and the, the uh, Dingxing group with this idea that, well, first – so, so Dingxing says, we, we want to come back. We want to start a team. And then uh, the baseball league says, okay, good idea, but we need something too. So why don't you go to the minor leagues first, right? So there will be this back and forth and some trading of, of benefits for – for all the stakeholders involved until they reach some kind of solution that makes everybody happy. Uh, I'm surprised, though, that the Dingxing group it would, would, it would uh, look favorably on the proposal to be in the minor leagues. Um, and, and maybe that's just a bargaining ploy by the baseball league. They'll say, OK, put more money in, and you can be in the, in the major leagues. Uh, and we should also keep in mind some other factors as well, talking about sharing among stakeholders. I mean, one, the you know, Dingxing group has... has dealt with some some very big scandals in recent years. So this is one way to improve their image with the, the Taiwan public. Uh, so maybe that's not so bad. Uh, and also, uh, you know, Dingxing being a large business group, they're looking at investment opportunities in, in Kaohsiung with the new mayor, and the new mayor is courting business groups to invest more money. Um, th- this is one way for the mayor to, to achieve that goal and, and to bring a, a bit of a, a buzz to um, leisure activities in Kaohsiung by having a baseball team. Um, and, and it also will go down well with his public, with, with the citizens of Kaohsiung, um, if he could bring the baseball team. But but it will go down better if the team is actually in the big leagues, not in the minor leagues from from the start. 
Brian, I know how sporty <laughs> you are, mate. So, Not a, <laughs> a fifth baseball team. Yeah, would I mean, that make you suddenly go and watch baseball if you knew there was actually your team would be playing against four other teams and not three other teams every um, year? Not exactly. And also, I just think that then you have to build a fan base. I mean, this is a team that hasn't been around for 18 years. And just because uh, just going back to what Russell men- uh, mentioned, I was thinking about that as well, that uh, sometimes you do have companies that want to rebuild their public images and maybe having a baseball team is one way about it. Um, but also just these baseball teams that maybe previously faced scandals, how do you get around that? And also then you have the issue of that in Taiwan, you know, I think baseball teams across the world are oftentimes backed by corporate interests, but sometimes you directly have the name of the company in the name of the baseball team. And so when that company has a scandal, then that affects the team. But at the same time, yeah, I guess it does seem smart to uh, look at the team in Kaohsiung, I mean, to get on board with uh, Han Kuo's different initiatives. I mean, he probably welcome having a baseball team. It's a visible sign of uh, his success, for example, that, you know, oh, I brought baseball to Kaohsiung. And <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the people in Kaohsiung will have something to do on a Friday night, a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday afternoon. And that's where we'll have to leave it here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And Brian Hugh. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's 200th edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.